here we are. It's another week or another fortnight and Life of the Peloton is back. This fortnight, we have got a very, very special podcast. This is one of my favorite, a true friend, a career-long friend, Cameron Meyer. I'm really, really excited to have this podcast, and I had such a good time recording this with Cam. He's back in Australia. I'm over here in Europe. We did it online. I was very nervous about doing it online because I really wanted to just talk to him in person, but oh my God, I walked away from this podcast, and I was just like, ah, that was brilliant. What do you think, Lionel? Well, I don't want to spoil it for the listeners, but uh, we are on the eve of what would have been the Giro d'Italia, and there's a cracking Giro-related story in this podcast, isn't there, Mitch? Um, Cam Meyer really, uh, well, people can can listen to the story as it unfolds, but um, it kind of blew away my preconceptions that professional cycling and a, and a season in professional cycling is all mapped out meticulously for everyone. It clearly isn't the case all the time. It's not. And Cam has like this amazing story. He's got a huge career. There's a lot about Green Edge where I was racing with him, but there's a whole lot of stuff before and a whole lot of stuff after. Guys, like Lionel said, we don't want to spoil too much. Hang in for this one. There's a huge pod. This is Cam Meyer. Really enjoy this one because I certainly enjoyed recording it. Cheers, guys. Well, welcome, Cameron Meyer. This is a very, very special podcast, one that I have been thinking about doing for a number of years, but things keep changing in your career and I keep delaying it because I think, hang on, that's actually another little good story to get in and it just keeps going. But there comes a point where I've got to get you on the recording and that is that point right now. So welcome to the podcast. You are back in Australia. I'm over here in Europe and we're doing this online. So um, everyone will have to excuse use any glitches or anything but I think we've worked out a good recording system and hopefully it goes without any trouble today I'm going to just jump straight into this cam now this is a very special this was a very special moment for me but I can imagine this was a more special moment for you this was back in 2012 and I just want to set this up for everyone I just had a crash on the Orica Green Edge training camp was the start of Orica Green Edge or Green Edge back as it was called then and I was sitting out and I was sitting back in my home in Australia and I thought I might put the TV on and watch the World Championships. And what came on was the point score. And I'll just set up the race. If anyone doesn't know what the point score is, it's a 40-kilometer 40, 40 race on the, on the velodrome where there's sprints every 10 laps and the riders get points for every sprint. And if a rider takes a lap, they get 20 points and the rider with the most amount of points at the end of the race is the winner. That's a quick description of it. And I'll set this up here. Cam, this is his favorite event. He was two times world champion in 2009, 2010, and 2011, he finished second. We're in 2012, and we're in the dying laps of this race. 15 laps to go, Cam sitting in sixth position, no chance of winning the race by points, two sprints to go. The leader of the race at that point was Ben Swift, and he was comfortably getting these points. It's at home, it's in Australia, so the pressure's mounting. Cam, I can imagine was wanting that that win. Last year was second. He's like, what the hell? I want that third win. It's slipping out of his grasp. It's at the point of this race where it's so hard. You're in the last two sprints. Like everyone's just hanging on by grim death. Cam attacks. He goes for the, the gamble. He's like, well, 
There's only way to win this is to take a lap. And at this point in the race, I can see what he's thinking. This is what I think anyway. Yeah, I'm just going to lay it all on the lines. 15 laps to go, I'm just going to try. And if I can't make the lap, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. I don't have to follow any more laps after 15 laps. The race is over. But the guys who are leading this race are like obviously thinking the same thing. So he's not just going to slip away and grab a lap cheekily. So he goes at it. As the story goes, the crowd is erupting and three laps to go. Cam rejoins the peloton, takes the 20 points, takes over Ben Swift. Cam finishes with 33 points, Ben Swift on 32, and he becomes the world champion. And this, for me, at that moment, it gave me that inspiration. At home, I was on the edge of my seat, as everyone was at that velodrome that night. And if anyone, I'm going to put the video up on my website. You've got to watch this. It was awesome. Cam, what was going through your mind on that moment? You've just made me as uh, nervous as I was back then <laughs> with, that, <laughs> with that description. Uh, that was one of the, I think I said in an interview afterwards, that was the most nervous bike race I've ever done. And it, and it was like to race in front of your home crowd. I was, what have I done? I'd done five world championships, uh, the Olympic Games in Beijing, and then finally get a home world championships. And I was the, the favourite. I'd lost the year before, wanted the world title back, and all of a sudden this race isn't unfolding the way I want it to unfold. I've, I just don't have enough points. Laps are ticking by. I need a lap take, and I have to call on every bit of my experience of what I've done in the world championships over the past five years. And I just had to keep as calm as I could in that, in that scenario because I've always said to myself, at some point in a world, world points race championship, there's a breaking point. There is a breaking point where everyone is on their knees and you can win the world title. There is always that moment and the best rider will will win the world title. Um, and so I knew I was the fittest. I knew I wanted it more than anyone else with the home crowd. And it was just all about keeping that um, calm approach and knowing that that moment was going to come. And it came a little bit later than I would have liked it to. <laughs> and, and it only... Uh, I still had to get on just just in the nick of time to get that 20 points. But, uh, yeah, that was definitely definitely a highlight of my career and um, one that I look look back on very, very fondly as one of my best world titles. And, yeah, um, thanks for thanks for bringing that up. I was quite emotional listening to that. Well, there's, there's so much in that, and that's something big that I want to talk to you about today. And I want to get to it a little bit later on because there's a couple other stories where this situation plays out like that. And what I want to get into is that internal dialogue and you alluded to it a little bit there and that's something that I love about you is just, it's just so calculated and matter of fact. It's like I knew there was going to be a breaking point and you have that calmness in the race and how you waited till that moment, you know, like just didn't freak out and just be like, you know, times before like... At 30 laps to go or at 50 laps to go, just thinking, you know, I've got to go. I've got to go. It's too late. Like, how did you wait until that last moment? How did you not just freak out and go, like you said, I had the form. I knew I could win. How did you not blow it before then? I, I guess when I think about um, the calculating of races, and it's always been an asset of mine of how I've raced. I've always calculated a lot in bike racing. And I will be the first to say that I've lost as many bike races, if not more, than I have won of, of trying to calculate the scenario. You know, you get into a bike race and sometimes you should just go. You should just back yourself and you should have the legs and you make those 
sporadic um, those sporadic moments and sometimes they pull off but I've always been the one that's got to calculate it 10 times over in my head and oh what's that guy done and uh, like in the velodrome oh what's the temperature that means we're going this fast and maybe I'm thinking about it too much too many times but um, on that occasion it won me a world title and uh, I was able to stay calm and, and bring on all the all the knowledge that I had and I had I had to be as calm as I as I have in probably any bike race I've ever won. So um, yeah, it was just it was just great to have done it in front of a home crowd. Let's go back right back to the beginning because I want to see where this man was created. I want to go right back and I want to ask you the typical question: How did you get into cycling? You know, the beginning, Midland Cycling Club, or well, even before that. Tell me the story. Tell everyone the story. Uh, yeah, well, I, it was a bit of luck, actually. I had a year seven camp um, at school, and on the year seven end of year camp, we were going to have some mountain biking. And as part of the uh, curricula, they had to know that everyone could mountain bike ride. So we did a school clinic, and where I live in in Perth, where I'm where I'm from, uh, the velodrome is not too far away from from my house or my school at that time. So they were running the clinics and at the end of this three-day clinic, I think it was, uh, of learning to do mountain biking with the rest of my my school class of Year 7, uh, they gave out some free passes to try the velodrome and it was just a free pass to try one Wednesday night um, open session and I brought it home to my to my family and, and showed Dad. I said, oh, I got this free pass today and Dad said, oh, track cycling and he he, his interest started to spark up. Anyway, he, he took myself down and my brother, Travis, um, both down to try the session and uh, it kicked off from there. I, I loved it. I got up on the velodrome and uh, just enjoyed the challenge of it. And from, from there, I actually learnt later on that my dad was actually a cyclist back in the day. So he did state, cha- mm. state championships and um, he actually went to, over to the Australian selection races trying to make under 19 squads and that and he'd given it away when he had uh my brother and i and as soon as we started to did this school camp with the mountain biking and then came home with these free passes it sort of sparked his love back and goes oh maybe i can get my boys into cycling here and um away we went isn't it funny how like he hadn't said anything about it and you ended up drifting into that sport he never had even shown any interest in cycling before that at all no clue he had never said anything about his about what he had done in the past and i'd never really picked up or seen that he was really interested in it uh and yeah it wasn't until we got that free pass that he he his love came back through through seeing my brother and i um start cycling so that was pretty cool well tell me about those junior days because what i've heard is you and your brother were just like once you got involved you guys just went all right, we're going to do this. We're going to do it properly. You were knocking out big Ks. You were setting the standard because from what I understand in WA at that point, Hank Vogels was probably the last big pro to come out of WA. So there wasn't really a big sort of um, professional sort of, you know, leader there that you were looking up to. Who was, who was your inspiration back in those days? And run me through what it was like as a junior coming through. Yeah, we probably we didn't have uh, the amount of professionals, and and Hank Vogels um, was over racing in Europe, so we we didn't really see him at all in in Perth, and um, he also spent a fair bit of time on the East Coast. So 
Uh, we actually had a, a f- fair few track riders that were our uh, inspirations back then. We had Peter Dawson, who had won multiple world championships at, at that time in the in the team shoot. We had Ryan Bailey, who uh, won two gold medals at the Athens Olympics from from Perth. So um, we had a little bit in the in the track side of things, and and that's where my career started on on the track. We did start pretty full on, actually, my brother and I. There was a we were, we were right into it, trying to make uh, junior teams for our state team to, to go across to the Eastern States to race the national championships. And uh, yeah, it was it was pretty full on. We, we hit it hard with uh, trying to be as professional as we could be because we had aspirations of being the national champion. And, and then all of a sudden the Olympics came on, the Athens Olympics, and we were watching Australia dominate on the track, dominate on the road. And um, we it wasn't until probably 2004 when we did see the Athens Olympics and saw all those Australians going so well. I was at the end of my under-17 category and I was moving into the under-19s where you could then strive to make your first Australian team. So 2004 was really where I thought, oh, yeah, I really want to do this. I want to go to the Olympics. I want to make an Australian team. What was the impact of the other people around you? And you thinking back to yourself now, do you think, oh, my God, we must have looked like crazies back then? Or you were just like, you know what? It was awesome, you know, like I didn't care. No one, people didn't judge us or whatever. How, how were you guys viewed as the two guys coming up? You and your brother, that is. Probably it wasn't at that time. We didn't think of it. We didn't know any different. We, we trained full, very hard. Uh, and when you, it wasn't until we got later on in life that people would say to us, geez, you were crazy back then. You did so many kilo- more kilometers. I remember Lee Howard saying, he used to do 30 kilometres and so we'd turn up and he was like our main competition at the national championships. And I'd be like, I, I, did, a, I did 100. I did three times the amount you did, mate. And uh, yeah, it wasn't until then later on that everyone started to hear what we were actually doing in training. But my brother and I, we didn't know any different. And we were part of a, a great club, a great group of uh of riders at that time. We had Luke Durbridge come through and Michael Freeberg um, in the same uh, Midland Cycling Club. And yeah, we didn't know any different. So um, I don't look back and go, oh, I regret doing too much back then because um, I think it's a part of me and it was a part of us really getting into the sport and really having that drive at at a young age. Yeah, and it sounds like to me, it wasn't a hassle. It was just sort of like, you just loved it. And it was just like, give me more, give me more. And um, and that's sort of just how it was flowing for you. Run me through then, 2000, uh, in under-19s, and I remember this for me was it was a massive thing, under-19s, you move in, like you, you alluded to then, your first national team, and you went to the Junior Worlds, and you pretty much smashed it. And from what I can understand, it was did you only go to one Junior Truck Worlds? Is that no, right? No, I went to both. I went to that, oh, you went 2005 to both. and 2006. And you won the... Madison Teams Pursuit Individual Pursuit so you came on the scene strong what were you thinking at that point were you like wow this is really easy or just the, the amount of work started paying off or what was what was your your experience of your first sort of world's experience uh, I don't know it, uh, it happened all very fast that year I was part of the road team and the track team and I went from Italy racing some lead up events with the Australian team I jumped back onto the track um, to do the track world championships then I jumped back onto the road to do the road world championships and it all happened so quick but I, I just know that it sort of clicked that year that that year was the one where 
I felt the best. I felt like um, all the hard training that I'd put in and everything that I wanted, I wanted to make the Australian team and I wanted to go and try and win the uh, Junior World Championships. And I, I remember looking at all the photos of uh, even yourself with the, the blonde hair um, and being a part of that culture of the Australians who won Junior World Championships and that's where, where I really wanted to be. So I think that drive when I, when I did get to the World Championships and win those events um, was just part of that that drive that I did have and I really I really think that year was the the big stepping stone to then um, going on to to make a career of the actual sport because I think like and I get the feeling you're starting to get really comfortable you're starting to be the sort of the top of the tree there and Australia sort of saw that and they threw you in to the Beijing Olympics 2008 and we're talking about four years after what you just spoke about Athens and going, wow, the Olympics, I, I would love to make that one day, let alone as you know that'd be the next Olympics. What was that like jumping straight into the Olympics, the point score, which then became your favourite event? And I get the feeling also, you can talk about this too, is the point score was a different event in those days compared to what it is now in terms of the way they raced it and it was a little bit corrupt in a way. Um, you know, like it was just a different event. Um, tell me about that whole experience, you know? Yeah, I- I wasn't ready. <laughs> I, I was not ready for Beijing Olympics. I, I thought I was because I, I'd gone to the World Cups and I won a World Cup in Los Angeles and I'd versed the, the big guys, the big hitters in the senior ranks and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm competitive straight away and I'm only just got out of the juniors, but I can do this. And then I arrived at Beijing and, and I, I ran fourth and, and I was happy with that result, but I was also the young, naive um, junior or young kid on the block that was a little bit disappointed at the same time that I was so close to the podium but people ask me about stories of Beijing and I don't really probably have that many stories of that Olympics like I probably didn't absorb it all in I was too young at the time I was focused on trying to win an Olympic medal that I wasn't ready for and uh, yeah it just sort of passed by that quick and now I'm, I'm people goes oh you've been to the Olympics and um, what was that experience like? And I, I probably, I, I don't feel like I'm a proper Olympian. Uh, and that, and mm. that's where Tokyo Olympics, uh, now that it's been 12 years since Beijing, um, I was ready for or I'm ready to, to absorb what a proper Olympics is. And uh, yeah, so it is strange times that that's, uh, that's not going to happen this year. But Beijing was a, was a blur. Well, because then it, things just kept moving at that rapid, that rapid pace. You know, the, the following year, you turned pro the same year that I turned pro, 2009. Um, you went straight into Slipstream. I think it was called then or Garmin Slipstream. And, you know, that was also on the track. You're also having some success. Straight off the back of that, Beijing, you went and won your first world championship on the, in the point score. So I guess yeah, the experience of Beijing on the track maybe allowed you to grow very quickly. But then you were straight away trying to absorb, hang on, I'm a road pro now. Like for me, things are moving really quick. What was what was what was that like? Just jumping straight into the the world tour. Probably the same answer as Beijing. Too quick. Wasn't ready. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it was just it was all coming one after the other. It's like one one experience. I think I I went to Beijing and I wasn't a professional, but I I achieved a fourth place. Even though I look at that fourth place and there was a little bit of a luck involved. Yeah, I was this go getter that went out there and 
tried to take everyone on and I got a good result and that sort of stepped into a pro contract the next year even though I had done half the racing in Europe that a lot of the guys who were trying to get pro pro contracts was I I had a great result in a um, in the under 23 time trial at uh, Varese I worked hard after the Olympics for six weeks got a bronze medal um, and then turned professional so it sort of it all happened so quick and then Straight away, I'm 21 as a professional, uh, and my first ever race in Europe as a professional was the Giro d'Italia. <laughs> so it just didn't stop. It was like straight away, I'm my, my, it's just all happening so quick. Oh, aren't you meant to wait a couple of years to do your first Grand Tour? No, this is your first race as a professional in Europe is, uh, is the Giro. So it just didn't stop. Well, tell me about that because this is some, a story I wanted to ask you about. I've heard some whispers about you were down at a training camp with Vanderveld and at Tenerife, was it? And, you know, tell me what happened there because that's quite a funny story itself. Yeah, I, I was actually in Girona at the time and I'd just come from the Track World Championships where I won my first world title um, in 2009. I arrived into Girona, setting up as a professional, and I was told, oh, you're not going to race probably for for six weeks, settle into Girona, find your apartment, find your fee, get all your new bank account, get all, everything you have to do as a normal person that's gonna set up in Europe. And then I was just starting back on the road, getting lost on bike rides around around Girona and trying to find the loops. And uh, I got a message from Christian Vanderveld and Dave Zabriskie, and they asked me if I wanted to go into the mountains in the Pyrenees, which is close to Girona, and they were doing a six hour big mountain day and they were getting ready for the Giro that was coming up in four weeks time. So I said, oh yeah, I'll go along, even though I'm, I'm not that fit coming off the track. I, I haven't done much road. And um, anyway, again, youngster thinks I can train with the big boys, went into the hills and I just had one of those days that I was feeling really good. I don't know. I, <laughs> something happened and I I felt really good. And Dave Zabriskie and Christian Vanderveld are going really hard on the climbs and I'm staying with them over the first mountain pass and I stayed with them over the first sec- second mountain pass and then they said to me oh we're going to chop off in this in this valley because <laughs> and and the th- they said oh you can join in or you can sit on or you can join in and I thought oh this is my bread and butter here I'm like come from the yeah, come, that's the, <laughs> come yeah. from the track I said you want to swap off in a valley this is my bread and butter right up so we're getting there we're chopping off a 20k and this six hour ride <laughs> And I'm just ripping turns with Vanderveld and Zabriskie, and they're only four weeks out from. And Christian's going to about to ride GC at the Giro as well. And and Zabriskie, he's just like a time trial specialist. Yeah. So we're we're swapping off, and we've got the follow car there, and then we hit the last climb of the day, and we're five and a half hours deep into this ride. We hit this last climb, and they said, "Oh, we're going to empty the tank up this last climb." And what climb was it? Uh, just out of interest. It was, we're out near Olot, we're near the Voltaire 2000, but it wasn't the Voltaire right. 2000. I don't know exactly what climb it was, but it was out in that okay, area. It was around there. Yeah. Okay. And we've hit this last climb and they said, we're going to, uh, Vanderveld goes, I'm going to try and hold six watts per kilo. It's, I'm, I'm treating it as a race, a race replication day. Um, you can just try and hold on as long as you want. And I said, all right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. Good to see where this is going. <laughs> We start going up there and it's a good half an hour climb and we get about 15, 20 minutes in and Zabriskie gets dropped and I'm still on Vanderbilt. And Vanderbilt now is on trying to get rid of me on this climb and I, he gets rid of me like I blow with like a couple of K before the top of this climb. I, I absolutely blow. But it's the last bit and Vanderbilt, 
Um, he's going deep. He's, he's got. He's given everything. He's given it everything, and he is emptying the tank. GC rider for the for the Giro d'Italia. Anyway, we get we get in the car after that ride, and we're driving back to Girona, and. Vanderbilt goes, oh, you go all right for a track rider, don't you? Uh, <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, I was having a good day. He goes, how would you like to ride the Giro in four weeks? And I, <laughs> I, I just started laughing. I was like, yeah. I said, that, oh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. real funny. Um, anyway, I, I get back to my apartment in Girona. And about two hours later, I had a shower, I had some lunch. My phone rings and it's Matt White. And I was like, okay. And Whitey goes, oh, are you home? Are you in your apartment in Girona? He goes, I'd like to come around. I said, yep, I'm home. Come around. Anyway, he comes around. He walks in the door and he's holding the Giro manual, the Giro book in mm. his hand. Oh, yeah. And he goes, uh, heard you had a good day. Um, I've sp- <laughs> spoken with uh, Christian who uh, spoke with Jonathan Borders and they gave me a call. How would you like to ride the Giro? I said, Whitey, I haven't even raced in Europe yet. Whether I'm doing the Giro. I said, I don't even know how to answer that. <laughs> Anyway, he's, he's selling it to me. He's like, no, we need you for the team's time trial. We're the defending champions in the team time trial. We've got to go against HTC, and they, they've got a red-hot team. But we've got, we've got David Miller, Bradley Wiggins, uh, Christian Vanderveld, Dave Zabriskie. Like, we can do this. We can, we can win it again. Need you in the team's time trial. He goes, I, oh my God. you've been to the Olympics. You won your first world title. I know you can handle pressure, and I need someone that can handle pressure because it's the first day and we want the pink jersey. I said, okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> three, three weeks' time, I was on the start line of the Giro rolling down for the team's time trial, and we were equal favourites with HTC, and I am absolutely shaking in my boots, and i got Bradley Wiggins on one side of me, i got Zabriskie and Miller on the other side of me. I'm stuck there in the middle, and uh, we, we came second. We lost by six seconds, um, but, yeah. Oh, my gosh. What was, oh. <laughs> How did you go on that day? Yeah, I went pretty well. I was, I don't know. I, I had a good day. I, I did my job and I peeled all the way into the K banner, um, peeled, peeled into the K banner and we lost by six seconds. So, um, yeah, it was an unreal experience, but geez, I was nervous going on the, off the start oh. line. <laughs> I, I didn't know all that. I, I just, that's just such a brilliant story. Like, and that's what I mean. Like, this is just like on top of each other, you know, like things are just, oh. Oh, well, and straight you, out of that, yeah. second race in Europe was Tour de Suisse straight off the back of Giro. <laughs> oh, my... Like, after that, it's just like, there's actually not much more. You just do... Once you do the tour, you've done the three hardest races in the whole calendar. Yeah. Maybe throw a Dolphiné in there one, one year, and you know what? That's it. Yeah. You're done. No, ticked it off <laughs> two years in. <laughs> Well, let's fast forward a little bit because the next time that I sort of came back in touch with you and something that I remember specifically was a big breakthrough personally for you, I feel, as a pro was when you won Tour Down Under. I was there riding in the national team and I just remember seeing you, um, what's the right word here? You were just sort of that real, that level above, you know, and coming through the junior ranks with you a little bit I sort of saw myself yeah you know Cam and I or us as a group but then that was like wow Cam just won you know a very big race and the way you won it too the solo victory in there took time 
for me, that was right. That sort of put you on a new level for me. And I think in the pro ranks as well. It's like you weren't just a, a handy rider who could handle big things, like you said, a good team rider. You were starting to put your own results on the board and like, hey, I can do things on my own too. If I get the support, I can be, you know, a small stage race winner and so on and so forth. What were your feelings after that tour down? Is, is that sort of correct, the, the feeling there? As things were coming up, you're starting to get, get your hand around things and you're looking to make that next step personally? Yeah, I think, I think 2011 with the Tour Down Under was, was the first step in deciding, oh, okay, I can win bike races in the pro ranks. Um, I think winning the Tour Down Under all, also didn't put pressure on my shoulders afterwards, but I, probably internally it did because I, I went, oh, you've won a world tour. Everyone expects that uh, you can win races in the world tour now. And I needed to step up to that to that level now. It's I've had two years, um, which was a baptism of fire from the, for, the, for the first couple of years in riding the Giro and those big races all of a sudden. But now it's like, oh, okay, I can, I can win. And uh, that was the stepping stone going into Green Edge where it was, I could be put up as a leader in certain races, small stage races, or go to a one day race like a national championships or um, those sort of the races and have opportunities or a stage within a big race, uh, have those opportunities and try and win. So the Tour Down Under definitely was that first step in, in that direction. And, and that followed on to 2012 and 2013, which uh, when we started with Green Edge, I was able to then go to GC for a Tour of California or a Tour of Turkey or a Tour de Suisse and, and go in the breakaways in the Vuelta uh, and, and try and get those, uh, try and achieve those results. Yeah, because you were then the one of the first signings, if not the first signing that Greenwich announced. So you were, the team was looking at you as the rider to move into that position. You'd showed it with Tour Down Under and as you alluded to there, the first couple of years were rolling in that direction. We rode the Wells of Spaniards together the first year and I remember you were one of the supported riders. We went there with a young squad. It was quite a great squad. It was just the right environment to support someone like you coming through and not with, you know, big names, big expectations, but just a good expectation with Neil Stevens leading the the, um, the train there. It was a great experience. And I remember coming in th- with you through those first years of Green Edge and I could relate to you a lot because we were from the same age and the same style of rider in terms of at that, that, that level. But you were a real leader for me because you were doing things professionally and you were taking that next step to try and better yourself to become this um, yeah this this GC rider this this next level rider tell me about then after those first couple of years and then sort of 14 15 in green edge I'm talking about and it was probably called Orica green edge at that point where your career started to go differently because you know, in 2014 was still a, a really successful year. You had a fantastic win at the Tour of Swiss, an amazing win. Um, and 2015, you won the GC of the Herald Sun Tour. So tell me where your head was sort of at after 12-13 and then 14-15, your second two years with Orica. Yeah, well, 14 and 15 were were probably a, a big change. They, that's where I didn't, I felt like things weren't going in the right direction. 12 and 13, I committed 100% to trying to be a GC rider. I, I hired a motor pacer for three months of the year. He was with me every day uh, on every training ride and 
Uh, I lived at altitude. I trained to try and run top 10 in Tour de Suisse, and I did. And Torino, I went top 10, and California, and all these races. And um, I signed a good contract at the end of 2013 as this rider that was capable of running top 10s and, and in week long stage races, be a GC rider. But then in 14 and 15, I lost my direction a little bit. I think the team then wasn't quite ready to have a GC rider or also take me to in a direction I needed some guidance. I went, oh, okay, how do you turn a top 10 into a podium? How do you, how do you then go to racing against your, your big names, your, your Nibblies, your, your Richie Ports at those times, your, your Chris Frooms and, and those sort of riders? How do you go up against them in the in the top three on, on a stage race. And I, mm. I didn't know how to do that. And I don't, and the team didn't know how to do that at the time yet. Everyone went, Oh, you ran top 10 last year. And I, I didn't handle the expectations and I didn't have, uh, the guidance to then just go, Oh, where should I go? And, uh, I didn't handle things well in 14 and 15. And yeah, I had the win in a stage of Swiss and they were sort of desperate wins for me, really. I mean, I, I expected a lot more. I didn't achieve what I should have or what I wanted to achieve. And I had a couple of uh, results in there, but they they were just out of desperation, really. And uh, yeah, at the end of 15, I, I parted ways with, with Orica Green Edge at the time. And I also needed to rediscover what sort of rider I was or what direction I was going to go in. And uh, yeah, and it was, a hard, it was a hard time at the end of 15 because I was in a place that I was like, oh, can I be a GC, GC rider? Do I need to be something else? Uh, I'm not at the age that I still have the leadership to be a, a full captain on the road. So where do I actually sit at the moment? And uh, yeah, it was a strange time. Because you then moved on to Dimension Data. When you arrived at that team, what was the, because I remember speaking to you a little bit about this yourself in those times and the feeling I got was like exactly what you explained then. You were searching for something, but when you arrived at Dimension, it just wasn't what you were looking for. I don't know what you were looking for, and maybe you didn't know yourself, but nothing sort of appeared. Is that the feeling you had when you came to Dimension, and you were sort of like, this is not what I thought? Yeah, it was exactly like that. It was, I thought I, thought I needed to go some somewhere else and, uh, and try and discover who I, who I am as a rider and where I should go, and a fresh start was going to do it all, just going somewhere totally different with a fresh start. Here we go, let's let's get the ball rolling again. But it it wasn't exactly what I was looking for or it didn't turn out to hit everything that did guide me in the right direction that I needed it to. And uh, Dimension Data was like a great support network. They were a great team and it was exciting because we were new, but behind the scenes, they weren't quite ready, I don't think, to be in the pro ranks. They, they had the budget um, and they had great weird sign Mark Cavendish and that was quite exciting. We had Cavendish and Isel and Renshaw and um, Edvald Bosenhagen and all of a sudden this team's going somewhere but they didn't quite know how to actually do it at that stage now and it actually took a fair few years for them to find their feet and the same with Orica Greenedge when they started. You don't just go into the world tour and all of a sudden you have this well-structured organisation that is uh, is great across the board and it takes a few few years to iron out those um, those things within an organization and unfortunately at where I was at and with that team just starting it just didn't quite click at that time and I wasn't in the right headspace to um, to find my way through that 
and that that led to me taking some time away from the sport to to then try and rediscover um, where I wanted to go in my career on the bike. Did you know you were doing that at that point? Because this is a huge call, and I, I know, you know, at this point, what are we looking at? 2016. So you're already, you know, seven, eight years into your pro career. So it could be potentially, a, you know, what I'm done. I'm done with this sport. I'm retiring. You know, retiring from professional sport. You know, to make a call like that, and then. You know, in hindsight now, we can see where your career's gone and everyone, a lot of people could say, well, it was the right call. He needed time to come away and come back. But at that point, it's not that easy to just to take six months out and shut your contract down. A lot of people would just plug on more than not just go, you know what, I'm just going to plug on. I'm here. I'm getting money. I'm just going to sort it out on the road. And I find that call, and at the time, I'm sure you copped a lot of slack for it. What are you doing? You're letting your career go. You know, what, what the hell? It's like, hang on. I need to sort this out. And that was a huge call. Like, it's just like, it shows your character how strong it is. Like, I need to just work out what's going on here. And maybe this is the end of cycling, but that's probably better that I'm still, you know, not depressed or I need to get out of this space. What was that like? How did you come to that point of making that call? Was it obvious for you or was it just like someone helped you make it or eventually just came to the boiling point where you're like, I've got to get away? It came to the boiling point, basically. It took weeks and weeks where um, I was in a not in a good headspace. I wasn't racing well. I was uh, avoiding friends as well. And, and that just because I didn't like the, the person that I was on the bike was affecting the person that I was off the bike. And... It eventually came to a boiling point that I went, I've got to step away. I've, I've somehow got to get away to figure this out. And I knew it had to be away from the cycling industry, from the cycling world. And I made the call and it was the most nervous email I've ever sent to say, I'm ripping my com- contract up and I'm stopping cycling for the time being. Because I knew that there was going to be a whole heap that came with that. There's media that was going to come with that. Uh, you hadn't really seen many people do that. I, I can't think of anyone really to say, oh, it worked out for them before. Or, or there's not many cases of people just ripping the contract up and, and just taking time away. So I was nervous that I was, and I did it all myself. I No one knew, my parents didn't know. Um, and I, mm. I went over, I actually escaped. I went holidaying up into London. I went to London. Mm. I got an apartment and I stayed there for a month and no one knew where I was. I didn't say where I was in the world. No, none of my friends knew where I was. I just said to them, I'm okay. I'm, I'm sorting this out. And that's all yeah. I could say. And I didn't speak to media and I went up there and I actually lived as a normal person, which I had not been. I'd been a robotic cycling kid from a very young age and I had been in this world to a trying to be this GC guy and it all just came crashing down and I I didn't actually know how to be a normal person even when I was in London I was like oh is this what is this what happens you catch them catch the metro train and um like I, I went and got a personal trainer and I just worked uh in this personal gym I was I was running with the sleds like you see it on youtube and we don't as bike riders we don't really do too much versatility with our bodies because we can we can be a bit fragile at times and i was running with chains and running with sleds and i had this bodybuilding guy he was i saw him five times a week and we were just hammering me through the normal personal trainer workout boot camp style 
and I <laughs> and I'd 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 walk two k to get there. I'd walk two k back, and I'd try a different coffee shop every day, and I'd try a different lunch place, and I'd speak to the people at the cafe and try and make friends and read the paper, and I was just doing things that. I hadn't really done because I was so fixated on trying to be this GC guy and be this professional mm-hmm. athlete. And I did a month up in the UK. No one knew where I was. And it was just time that I needed. And eventually at the end of that time, I said, I still want to be a professional bike rider. Righto. I'm going to, I'm going to start up again. Wow. Yeah. And it's, and I saw that transition of, I, before you left and that, that slow transition into this guy that, I wouldn't say I didn't really know anymore, but like you said, you distanced yourself from everyone. And when you came back, I remember the first few conversations, I was like, you were, re- you were reborn. You were this new person. You had these goals. And and let's talk about those those goals when you came back. You It was quite, a, quite an interesting situation. And a lot of people, I can imagine, were like, what do you want to try and achieve? You're like, I'm going back to the track. The first race you did was um, the sixth day of London. And you went on that year and just pretty much finished out that year racing on the track. 2017, you were back on the track at the Worlds and, you know, winning the point score again, your favorite event. And just did things feel like, I need to go back to the beginning, what I love? That, yeah, that's, that's how I set it in my head that I need to go back to the start and I want to find that love. And I started on the track and that's where I went straight to. And... I think that was a real pivotal point to get me back going into my career and and rediscover that uh, love for cycling that I, I did have as a junior and that was on the track. And I went back there, I went and did the six days and got that crowd atmosphere that the six days has, riding with a partner and a teammate. And I, I then went to the world championships and that pressure environment of a world title and doing the team shoot and doing the points race and doing the Madison at the world title, I rode three events and um, yeah, I loved it. I loved that competition aspect was back and it was back where I had started my career and that was on the velodrome and, and that really kick-started me um, back into then signing a professional contract again. Now, I want to fast forward right forward to this earlier this year in the National Championship. It's a race that you've been wanting to win for your whole career and finishing second there before, very close, always around the, you know, around the mark, always good in January. And this year, the stars aligned and it happened. And yes, the stars aligned. I was actually watching the race because I wasn't there this year, so I got a good view of it. And I saw this moment. And I'm going to talk about the same moment that we spoke about in the 2012 Point Score World Championship, that moment. Like you said, okay, there's going to be a moment and I'm going to know when the point is to win a race. And that's that moment. They're going up the hill here, the last lap, everyone's on their hands and knees, Cam included. And there's this moment there, it pauses and I I can see it now. It's the time to go. Everyone knows it's time to go. And you could see this grimace on your face. It's just like, well, this is going to hurt, but this is the world. This is the Aussie champ right here. And you go and you get the gap and you just go head down all the way to the line. And you could see it hurt. You don't often see Cam grimace. And that was a moment when you grimaced. This is back to what I'm talking about. This is what I want to get into a little bit now is that internal dialogue. 
that calculation in your head. And when you make those attacks, what's going through your mind once you commit to the plan? Yeah, the the Nationals this year, it all sort of just, wouldn't say it worked out to what uh, I needed it to, but it, it did like the World Championship into 2012. There was that moment. And there is always that moment in the National Championship. It's very similar. And I love that style of racing, if it's on a circuit or the velodrome, where there is always that moment to win the bike race. Um, and I was calculating the whole day, as I normally do, but... I, I'd gone in with, I'm going to sit the last wheel behind all the favourites. So the whole race for the first, uh, there's what, 16 laps, 13 of those 16 laps, I sat, so if Jay McCarthy was 40th wheel and he was the last guy of the favourites, I was 41st. If uh, Chris Harper was 70th wheel, I was 71st wheel. I did not want to be seen for 100. And I was pretty nervous doing it because there was a few moments where you go, oh, it might split. Oh, you shouldn't be in this position. (laughs) But I knew if I had one favorite in front of me and I had all the favorites in front of me, but I was the first wheel behind the last favorite on the race, I was never be seen, but I was never in trouble. So I took that risk, but I knew that this is the best way of me being in the right condition to win the bike race when that moment comes. And when it came on the, on the last lap, we'd gone through the bell and we've hit the hill. I knew that everyone waits for the second half of the hill. They, they think about the second half. It's, it's a risky move to go on the first part of the hill. It's a long way out. And again, I went, you've got to come from the back. No one can see you out of sight, out of mind. Then you try and hit them with momentum. So you're going 10K an hour faster. You have to be hitting them over on the right so they get no slipstream. You have to be gaining 10K an hour through the feed zone because you'll be going quicker than them whilst they're stalled. Then you get onto the second part of the climb and I was just calculating all this and I saw the moment. I saw it. I went, here it is. Uh-oh. The- Were you scared? <laughs> Were you scared of that moment? Because you knew there was pain in front. Uh- I think it's like you, when, when you're describing it to me about how to explain it, it is that one big deep breath and I just go, all right, here it is, right? <laughs> You've got to go. Here we go. And <laughs> it's going to hurt. Here we go. It's just, I don't know, it's something in your head that just says, here it is. They're, they're, it's all evolved, all in front of you. You've done everything. You've been as calculated and as you could be. You've been as patient as you can. Now when that moment comes, there's nothing that should say you shouldn't do this because you've done everything for the last four and a half hours to make this happen and you wanted it to happen that you've got to say, here we go, now I've got to go. And mm. I go at that point and it, it happens. And um, I've had some, some real memorable experiences with winning some bike races because of that um, and being able to say to myself at that point, you've got to go, this is what you have been waiting for. And uh, yeah, that was pretty special to, to do it at the Nationals this, this year because I'd been trying for 12, 12 years and maybe I was too calculated in those 12 years because I had pretty, pretty close calls. But um, yeah, it made it all that sweeter this year. But then when you're away, is it just that calculation the whole time? Like, okay, okay, I know on this hill, it's just that's what gets you through those, those dying moments without becoming overwhelmed. You're like, I'm, this is exactly what I thought, hold you know, 400 watts up this hill, they're going to hold, and then you just move on to the next phase. Okay, on this downhill, get in the aero position, yada, yada. Is that how it works for you? Yeah, it, it's just, 
it's a continuation of that. Uh, you've mm. made the moment. You can now win the bike race if you do this, this, and this. So I'm mm. now away. I've opened up the gap. That was the moment. Oh, there it was. I can now win the bike race. Don't let it go. Hold this watts. Get over the top. Tuck in the descent. Do all the right breathing. Make sure you hold this power because you've done it. You now win the bike race if you just finish this last pit off and you, uh, I don't know, I just keep, I try try to keep all those calculations, don't, don't undo them by just giving up or getting out there and letting heart rate get to you or emotion or fatigue and all that. You just mm. try and, you try and suppress all that and you go, you are going to win the bike race now. Just keep continuing what you're doing. Well, that's what I want to talk about because you're very calculated and this goes back to the comeback whether you'd plan this or not everything was planned around the tokyo olympics like you said at the start of the podcast i want to be back there and i want to experience and i want to absorb at this time and it started back in 217 when you came back you went back on the track you were able to get a contract then at the at august with green edge but it was a special contract because it was a contract that revolved around you being at the olympics it was a bit of road to support your track and ultimately, you came back in 2018, back at the Worlds on the track, you know, point score again, locked that away five times now. And you're able to do what you wanted to do. And even when I touched base with you last year, this is 2019 now, you know, I, sorry, to go back one step, the Com Games was in, in between then. And that's one something I wanted to talk to you about just before we go to 2019. Com Games, we were there together. And I got the feeling... When I just heard you speak about I want to absorb Tokyo, I got the feeling in the Commonwealth Games in um, the Gold Coast, you were maybe trialing that. You were absorbing it. You were part of the atmosphere. You are in the village and you won the time trial there. But the biggest standout for me was you're a real leader in the road race. And when the pressure was mounted on you, me putting a little bit extra on there for you. <laughs> You came up with the goods and I wasn't surprised. You did this, you were there, you were just reliable and you just showed that that calculated reliability characteristic of yourself did the lead out for Steel Van Hoff and we took the victory there. Whether you were going to do that lead out, whether you were going to win solo, I knew we were going to win that day, whether it was you or someone else. I don't know. You were just that leader that day and you were that rock that I knew when I was out there in that break. I had no fear. I was like, Cam's behind. It doesn't matter, you know? And tell me about that sort of, that transition of coming to another event like the Com Games, which is for us Australians and for the Commonwealth, it feels like a mini Olympics. Not that I would know what Olympics feels like, but for me it does. How was that transition now coming as this re, re, new, rebirth new Cam to a trial you know, the Com Games, to be at a, a situation like that as an older rider, as a leader in these events that are very similar to the Olympics? Yeah, it was it. The Com Games, that was just on the Gold Coast. That was one of the best trips of, of my career. I loved it. The, the guys, the team. Um, yeah, we had, a, we had a great group of guys in that, in that apartment and also being a part of the track and the road and being able to absorb two weeks of the Commonwealth Games Village and, and compete on the track and the road was just was everything that I dreamed of. I, I think it was the the box ticking that I needed, I think, in in the way to Tokyo to say, yeah, this is what you want. This is the childhood dream, mm. the, the watching Athens Olympics, watching those Australians win gold. This was it. And I loved the whole atmosphere of it. Like I said about Beijing, I didn't absorb enough in Beijing. I didn't, 
I don't have enough stories to tell about Beijing. I didn't take enough in from the village and um, and everything that happened in Beijing. But when I was at the Com Games, I just I loved being part of the group. I loved the atmosphere. I loved the crowd. I loved the village. And I I wanted to bring every bit of my ten years of experience to whatever team I was in, whether that was the track or the road. And I wanted to be this calm guy that executed well because you still want to perform to win the gold medal and still absorb the whole experience of of the what a games is about. And that was it was absolutely fantastic the Commonwealth Games and it just told me that yes, now I want to do this at the Olympic Games in Tokyo in in 20 um 2020. So yeah, um, I look I look fondly on that on that Commonwealth Games, and uh, I definitely think it it reassured me that I'd made the right decision that I did want to to go after this path of of trying to be an Olympian again and um, compete for Australia in in those games events. And it seems like to me from the outside, you're a guy that really thrives off that great support group around you, whether that is being back in Australia around the family, preparing for those nationals, or whether it's being on the track in that small knit group very structured program but you know you've got that confidence there from the coach calling you from the side inside the track and these environments that you found yourself back in maybe sometimes in the pro world it can be unless you're in the in the right sort of group there within a world tour team it can be very loose and you're out on your own and no one really cares and you know you need that support group around you and something this is what I want to go to now is something that I was I found so amazing talking to you last year up in Andorra we're doing some training and I was like, what are you up to at the moment, Cam? You're like, I'm actually running through my preparation for the Olympics. And I was like, well, what do you mean? It was it was the exact lead up. It was, at, it was at the exact timing before the Olympic Games and you'd just done, what was it, the last two months or one month lead up to yeah, the Olympics? It was, was like it? six weeks. Six yeah. weeks. The exact six weeks of training that you were going to compete uh, complete this year leading into the Olympics, you wanted to trial it one year before and you happen to have a race that ran more or less the same day as the Olympic race down in Italy on the track a year before. And I just found that so amazing. I was just, it sort of blew my mind. I was like, but it made sense. And I was like, that's just Cam, calculate it, you know, get his, get it tested out. Like, this is my baby next year. Well, this year. So what I wanted, to, what I originally wanted to do was how was it going? You know, how was that preparation going this year compared to last year? But at the end of that that trial and then coming to this year and with the Olympics that were going to be around the corner, how are you feeling now at this point leading into the Olympics? Obviously, take out the last five weeks, but, you know, six weeks ago, that support group, how is everything feeling? Is that correct, what I'm sort of saying there, that you thrive with that that, that confidence around you? Yeah, definitely. I, I found a when – I, when I came back off my break, I found a really good – support network around me and that was signing with Mitchell and Scott and I love being back in that team I love I love the guys that are in it I love uh, the support network that they gave me they gave me great confidence to be able to sign a contract that allowed me to do chase my ambitions on the track and uh, still being a professional road rider and and be a part of a team on the road and and it might sound simple but in our professional road there's you want to take time away sometimes that's uh, not as easy as you think and you've got to find the right team and the right fit to be able to do that especially if you're going to do an olympic year where they know you might be gone months on end and that is one rider in their roster that they can't rely on to fill fill the gap in certain races so i found the right team to 
to be able to chase what I wanted to and, and also have the right support network and, and great group of guys around me. Probably in 17 and 18 and, um, and 19, it was, it was really heading really well. Probably a little bit of politics in some sort of ways is, uh, is always hard to, to deal with. And obviously the Cycling Australia with, um, are really going after these, uh, the Olympic gold medals. And it's not like we haven't gone after Olympic gold medals, but there's a bit of pressure on Australia to try and go back to where we were with Athens, where we were so successful. And we haven't been in the past in the, in the last past uh, Olympic Games. So there is pressure mounting on us. And I think in the last 12 months, possibly that pressure has got to us a little bit in that support network in, on, the, on the track. It's probably not as smooth and it's been quite a little bit of a rough period because at the World Championships this year in, in Berlin, we didn't have the results that we wanted across the board, across uh, our sprinters and, and our uh, endurance riders. We, we probably didn't achieve what we wanted to and it left us questioning, are we, in the, are we ready for Tokyo in, in 2020? And for me, myself, there's a little, been a little bit of change with, right, you, you've got the Omnium, you've got the Madison and the Omnium is something quite new to me. So I'm trying to get my head around, can I be that successful track rider and achieve my dream in the Omnium? And then there's the Madison, but we have such a great team pursuit team that there's a lot of focus on our team pursuit riders. And we've got to somehow come up with this Madison team to, to win the Olympic Games. And um, I think it's just a little bit on hold at the moment where with where we're at. Uh, I still have the envisage of the dream of Tokyo and I believe I can still win a gold medal there, but it's trying to get that support network around me on the track that that believes that that can still happen. And that's a work in progress just because Mm. the last 12 months, we haven't had the success that we thought we needed in the momentum to run into Tokyo. And so I don't know if this, uh, if it sounds right, but the thing that's happening in the world at the moment with the pandemic pandemic has given us time it's given australia time to to really dial in to get back to the basics of what we were winning in 17 and 18 and the momentum we were building to tokyo and just really get back on top of that to hopefully next year in 2021 when the olympics go ahead to then achieve the success that we want and i'm actually taking a few steps back during this time off to uh, really reassess right, what do we need to do? Who are the people around me that I need, need to really achieve that, uh, that success in Tokyo? Yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly what I was about to say. It sounds like to me, yes, team needs to work out what they need to do, but at the end of the day, your, your events, the Madison, not an individual event, but let's talk about the Omnium. It's an individual event. And yes, you need that support from the Australian team, but you also need to work what, what works for you. And you saw that as you took that time out back in 216 and came back and created this network around you. But I can see now, just talking to you now, that it's things are starting to unravel. It's like, well, I need to pull this in because I could have gone there and things couldn't have gone exactly 5% off here, 5% off there, and I would have missed my chance. Yep. So like you said, it's sometimes, a, you know, I always say this is a blessing in disguise things happen for a reason you know whether they're good or bad yeah and that's the way you got to view them because okay this is with the olympics aren't happening this year but what's the positive out of that yeah. and it's given you more time to hone in do another prep <laughs> everyone loves everyone loves doing another prep yeah and and take another another stab at it and make sure um and it's so good to hear that you're aware of what's going on and not just sort of blase about it and like let's let's lock it in let's dial it in yeah 
you know, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm trying to see the excitement in it. So, and me being the calculator writer, I love to sit there and let's go back through to the drawing board and let's try and calculate this thing so I can come up with that plan that's going to try and win me a gold medal. And so I'd, I never, I don't mind sitting there and trying to analyse how I'm going to do it and uh, take a few steps back. So I am still excited about Tokyo and hopefully that happens in 2021. And uh, hopefully I'll be there with some, uh, some good legs and I calculate well on the day. I think that's probably about enough for today. Um, love chatting to you. Thank you very much. I hope everyone enjoyed hearing Cam's story. There's, uh, I've left out us so much. As I said to him before we started recording, I had so much fun researching this because I thought I really knew Cam, but actually I had no idea. Um, there's just so much in there and we, we haven't even really scraped the surface. But I just want to get a really good over picture and especially tap into that internal dialogue and maybe take some tips out for me there when I'm trying to go for those solo victories. Thanks, buddy. You can go back to 2007 with uh, our first Worlds in Mallorca. And you're trying to get the cleaners in my room? <laughs> <laughs> trying to set you up yeah. there. Yeah, well, well, we've got we've got plenty of... Uh, so we actually were a Madison pair back in the day, yep. you know, got beaten at the national championships. But there was one story, if we can we can get to it. This is back to the internal dialogue. Jura de Badania <laughs> in Italy... <laughs> The year before Green Edge started, we got this composite Australian team and you and I had the job of covering breaks. And I mean, there's a certain way a race goes. And generally it's like people get the idea, okay, that break's going to form, let it go. But this race just would not stop. And apart from there was the protests and all this other crazy stuff happening. And Cam and I had this, this job of like covering breaks. And generally when you're working with a teammate to cover breaks, it's like you get that one, I'll get the next one, or you get two and I'll get one. Oh, Cam, you get three and I'll get the one. Cam, get five, I'll get one. Cam, get ten, I'll get one. And it was just going on for hours, you know? And I was just like, how is he doing this? How is he not mentally breaking? And like I said, it started with one each and ended up Cam was just doing ten. I was like, I better get back up there and help him. And it was just... It was so fun riding with you back then. It was was fun. I had to calm you down a little bit because you said, what is going on? I just don't understand. (laughs) You gotta keep your gotta keep your calm at those points, mate. <laughs> uh, you just calculating. Like, oh, that's it. I can't, I can't do this for many more k's. But that's the thing. Like I try and calculate like that, but it just blows my calculations out of the window. I'm like, it shouldn't be happening. People should be getting tired. Yeah, you go all right, mate. You go well. <laughs> we should get we should get the band back together. You and I ride another Aussie champ one day in the matter. We should. We should. Maybe a Bendigo. Throw that in there. We should do a Bendigo, yeah. Have you won Bendigo? I have won Bendigo. It took me a lot more years than you did, <laughs> but I eventually got there. Uh, well, yeah, good. Well, we can go there as past winners. Yeah, there you go. Great, mate. Well, um, we'll uh, leave it there. Thanks for that. Thanks, mate. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did because I was sitting back there and I thought I actually knew Cam, but some of those stories, I was sitting there listening and just going, I can't believe that. You know, the Giro story. Uh, What did you think, Lionel? What, What stood out for you? 
Well, I think uh, the first thing to point out is that Cam Meyer is the modern-day points race expert, isn't he? Five world titles in the points race on the track. It's a real, it's a kind of pure races event, that, isn't it? It's a combination of of speed, endurance and tactics. And uh, I remember watching in the velodrome in Poland in 2009 when Meyer won his first world title in the points race. The following year in Copenhagen was even more impressive. I mean, it was an amazing performance. He blew everybody away that night and had the velodrome standing on, uh, well, they they were out of their seats cheering as he uh, lapped the field. But just the contrast between the kind of the upbeat glory of track gold and and then the darker days i was really interested in how he processed the uh, period of his career where he really wanted to step away from road racing and and that grind of road racing that really came across to me um, and how he needed to sort of get away from it and reset for a bit the whole time i look at cam and like you spoke about the high times and the low times everything is calculated and i i sort of knew that from the outside but that was actually an underlining point of my whole podcast i really wanted to get into that internal dialogue with cam because i'm so interested what goes on in his head when he's making these big decisions whether that's stepping away from the sport whether that's attacking on the last lap in the nationals or whether that's taking a lap at the world championships at 13 laps to go you know like you look at his face he's so calm and relaxed and i was like i want to know what goes on in there because i want to take a bit of that for myself And he really got into that tonight or today or whenever you're listening to it. And it was just like brilliant. I really was happy that he just opened up for us tonight and let us hear what happens inside Cam's head. It was was absolutely brilliant podcast. It really was. And uh, well, it sort of links, I think, to the next episode you've got in the pipeline, Mitch. I don't know whether you're ready to reveal what the next episode of Life in the Peloton will be about. I am. I am ready to reveal it's a pretty exciting podcast. I've started recording already. I've got a couple of pieces already recorded in the pipeline. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to put the 2014 team back together. The year we won the individual, well, the team's time trial, sorry, in Belfast at the Giro. I'm trying to interview the full nine squad. I'm hoping I can get everyone on board. And we're going to talk about those days, the day before, the day of the team's time trial, and the day after. And a little bit about the whole feel of the Giro. I've already done a couple of recordings. It's going to be a big task, but it's so fun doing it because it's just bringing up so many memories I didn't even remember. I've got this vision of it, but these individual guys have got different visions of it, which is something that I forget. I'm like, oh my God, that's right. That did happen too. So it's going to be great when we piece it all together and make, this is something I've never done before. Piece this all together and have eight or nine guys answering five or six questions about these three days of for me the most favorite grand tour i've ever done so it's it's going to be fun i've still got some recordings to do i've got two more weeks hopefully and i can just piece this together for you guys coming in the next podcast Excellent. I'm looking forward to that one, Mitch, because I was in Belfast for that uh, start of the Giro in 2014. It was a big night for you, a Friday night in Belfast, wasn't it? Orica Greenedge won the team time trial, put your old mate Svein Tuft into the pink jersey. And then the following day, Michael Matthews took the pink jersey on and and kept it in the team. And then you had a, a week of defending that jersey. And I remember the day that 
Mike Matthews then won a stage in the pink jersey as well. It's a real big week for the team. So hearing how that all uh, kicked off in Ireland is going to be really fascinating. And, and you know, as, as you know, kind of distance um, gives a different perspective to some of these things. So it'll be interesting to hear what kind of stories uh, come out of the woodwork a few years later. Yeah, it's making me think a lot about the Giro at this time. And I wasn't too sure if I really love that race, but doing this podcast and doing these recordings and knowing that Giro will be running just about now makes me think, you know what, I'd really love to be in the Giro at this point. So, you know, without further ado, guys, really hang in there for the next couple of weeks. I've got Talking Luft coming up with Cam Meyer a week after this. In two weeks' time, we've got the Giro podcast coming. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Lara and especially Will, who's editing this, and the Cycling Podcast. Guys, everyone out there in uh, lockdown, hang tough. Cheers. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.